Uh, please join with me as we look into the scripture and see the Lord Jesus. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 18. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands and thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." 
As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Revelation 1, 1 through 16. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, 
Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Today we are going to be discussing the gospel of the kingdom of God, and the reason I designate it as the gospel of the kingdom of God is not because it's my scheme, but rather the scheme or the, the tradition of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and the apostles. When Jesus came preaching, he did not preach a gospel of forgiveness of sins apart from his reign. Jesus Christ preaches a gospel. He, he promises forgiveness to those who repent by his grace, by his power, to those who repent and receive him as their king. Uh, we're going to look at how that plays out through these chapters in Daniel and Revelation. But before we get into even the outline or the, the major structure of today's discussion, I just want to submit to you that if you've never taken the time to dissect the book of Daniel, the book of Jeremiah, and the book of Ezekiel, and yet you have opinions about Revelation, I give you permission to throw out your opinions of Revelation and receive new ones. Because Revelation, as we will see, is an interpretive key that must be unlocked with other parts of Scripture, and that is Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. And if you don't understand those books, you cannot understand Revelation, and you'll get very weird very quickly, and you'll start wondering, you know, what's the scroll and what's the bowl of, and trumpets? And you cannot go past Revelation 1 and have any doubt in your mind what's going on at the time. Christ is being demonstrated as the king. Christ is seen in Revelation 1 as the figure which replaces the figure in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. And if that's not immediately apparent, then you need to still lay a foundational groundwork uh, in those earlier books, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And, and, and if you don't understand that Christ is demonstrating his present reign in Revelation 1, that when John sees him, he sees all the portions of the body uh, of this figure that Nebuchadnezzar sees in, in 2, and how that other man, that, that 
you know, man of Adam, so, so to speak, is done away with, and we see the true man, Jesus Christ, reigning. And so uh, that is the scheme today. Jesus Christ is a king. We celebrate him on this Sunday, at, which is called Christ the King Sunday, in light of his present reign. And then next week, as we begin the church calendar again in the time of Advent, we simultaneously are approaching Christmas, longing for his first Advent or his first inbreaking, and also crying out to God for his second inbreaking, in which he fully manifests the kingdom in clarity. The kingdom is here today. Jesus Christ is a king, and it's not a spiritual kingdom alone. It has, a, it has real-world implications. What I, I hope to deliver you from today, if, you, if this remains at all in the way you think, and I, I would certainly say that it remains in my way of thinking about many issues in the Christian faith, is to deliver you from understanding Christianity as a religion which you hide in your heart. Right? David does say you hide God's word in your heart, so that you may not sin. It works itself out. Christianity is a religion which must work itself out. We're going to see how the gospel, which is the gospel of the kingdom, not just the gospel of going to heaven versus going to hell, is so vital for how we understand our purpose, the purpose for our lives, our families, churches, education, business, government. All of it is subject to Jesus Christ. All of it is underneath his reign. And those things which do not acknowledge his reign, he will smash and destroy. Between now and then, which he's always doing, by the way, between now and then, where, when the kingdom is fully made manifest, there is a period of mercy. There is a period of mercy because his kingdom is a gracious kingdom, as we're going to see. This is not a tyrann tyrannical God. This is a God who has purchased his creation back, holds the title deed to it, and is slowly and surely extending the kingdom and its borders. So with that framework, we're going to look at five aspects today. Uh, bet you didn't wonder what number of aspects we were going to have today. Five is a great number because it's about as many as you can remember without writing them down. If you do write them down, that would help. But we're, first, we're going to look at how Daniel and Psalm 2 are together. They, they are intentionally together, and there are things about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel 2, but mostly uh, Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 and Psalm 2, which uh, explain each other. We're going to look at that as the beginning for understanding God declaring not only to Israel, but also to the nations of the earth that he is going to establish a king. If you've spent any time in this church, you know that God plainly told Israel that he would establish a king. But what we often fail to see, especially because we do not think of the gospel of the kingdom of God, is that God also made it clear to the, to the nations that he would establish a king. And the way he made it clear to the nations is he told, through Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, the king over the first of the four empires just described in Daniel 7. He knew. And in fact, Nebuchadnezzar receives it as wisdom and becomes a Yahweh worshiper in both Daniel 2, Daniel 7. We see those little aspects of that. But, but make no, uh, have no room in your mind for understanding Christ's kingdom as spiritualized and never applying to real nations, real people, real time and space. And so we're going to see how actually Daniel 7 and Psalm 2 uh, make clear that Christ reigns now, not sometime in the future. And that from there, we're going to move to the presence of the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is 
extant now. It exists now. It is real now and is always developing and one day will be fully realized. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see Christ hands the kingdom over to the Father. Many Christians have totally messed up their understanding of of both history and therefore the future because they say when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to establish his kingdom. But actually, 1 Corinthians says he's going to hand the kingdom over because it's mature. It's, It's a presence given by Christ to the Father. Here is redeemed humanity. Here is a redeemed people who are filled with the Spirit, who are mature, who are real examples of redeemed sons of God daughters of God. And so Christ hands the kingdom over when he returns. He doesn't establish it when he returns. It has been established and will continue. And the reason this is so important is because Advent is filled, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, uh, it's filled with visions of Jesus Christ as the one on whom the government rests now. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 7, these are massive portions of scripture for us in the time of Advent. And if we don't understand them in the context of Jesus coming to establish his kingdom as a king who will never die, as a king who will live forever, as a king who will reign in righteousness and never be deposed, nor need to be, then we totally miss what he's doing in coming at Advent because he's coming to fulfill the promise to David that God gave that David would establish his line and on the throne, David would never lack a man to reign. Essentially, if God will fulfill the promise, as we're going to see in Advent, if God will fulfill the promise to David, then there has to be a king who never dies and never goes off into apostasy, like all the other Jewish kings did. And so this is the context of Christ's present reign. He really reigns now. It is not only in the future. Because he reigns now, and because of the scope of his reign, he has authority over everything And we're going to talk about how we begin to press that out as Christians, as believers. Understanding that Christ is king is very difficult for us as Americans because we don't have a king. Our culture has been removed of all understanding of what appropriate behavior and decorum and tribute. These are terms that are very far from us. And we have to do intentional work in understanding how Christ is king and how that applies. I don't pay tribute to uh, a king, this king, you know, involuntarily, but it's still tribute, and we have to begin to understand it as such. Then finally, after looking at God's mission for persons and all of culture, we're going to look at the mission for the church. Yes, Christ is king over individuals. Yes, Christ is king over families, but as individuals and families are are brought together by God's Spirit, Christ has a specific way in which he rules the nations. And I'm going to demonstrate how that is the church through the Spirit using the Word of God. We're going to see all of that in Revelation 1 at the end when we when we finally have some tools that we're going to get in Revelation, or sorry, in Daniel 7 and Psalm 2. So we got a lot of work to do, but it's going to be very, very worth it. Daniel's vision accords with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the four earthly and now historic, at the time they're coming and and in the future, but now historic kingdoms. So Daniel 7 is a separate vision that God gives to Daniel, which accords with or corresponds to Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel 2. Daniel 2 contains a vision in which uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. 
And then the dream is made plain and interpreted by Daniel. Quite an amazing feat, if you ask me. I'm not only going to tell you the dream, but then interpret it. And at the end of Daniel 2, uh, we see Nebuchadnezzar hear and receive the wisdom that Daniel gives. And then Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually says, now I know there's no God but Yahweh. Daniel's God is the only God. And he's the one who raises up kings, sets down kings. And, and this is, you know, Daniel praising God and Nebuchadnezzar joining it. And so the kingdoms arise one after another. This is not four kings who emerge out of the sea or out of time, if you will, uh, all at once. It's four kings who come one after another. And Christians throughout every age have always interpreted these four kings as the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, mostly Alexander, that's a very short kingdom, and then finally the empire of Rome. And the reason why we understand those is because it's made plain throughout all the interpretive schemes of the details of the various beasts and the descriptions thereof. Uh, if you go back through art history, you'll see when you get to the Babylonians and the Assyrians, they use the images of lions with wings, leopards with wings. These are not uh, things that Daniel has invented or God has invented that don't apply and are not decipherable. They are very clear demonstrations of the cultures which they describe, the empires which they describe. So that you have to assume that I'm right on. And if you don't think that I'm right on it, I would invite you to open Matthew Henry, which is a Reformed Baptist, and then John Gill, which is a Reformed Baptist. Most of you probably acknowledge the Reformed Baptist commentaries, and then any other commentary that you'd like. At least those two, and then any other, and see if they do not interpret it as those empires. That is the NIV Study Bible, the ESV Study Bible. Christians do not usually debate whether you believe that the kingdom is now or later, Almost all Christians believe that those are the four kingdoms. And it's very, very clear how that is the case. The interpretation is absolutely sure. And so Daniel shows us the key for interpretation in the very same chapter. So we're all agreeing that they're kings because of this part of Daniel 7. I approached one of those who stood there. Daniel is going in this vision to probably an angel or some other attendant to the king of the Ancient of Days. So he made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings. So when you get to the book of Revelation, and I'm going off on a tangent intentionally, when you get to the book of Revelation and you hear someone say, well, the beast and the Antichrist, which the Antichrist isn't in Revelation, then you think to yourself, oh, there's some person who's not affiliated with government. Daniel told you that beasts are kings. And beasts are also empires, and so you have to interpret it as such. Uh, it's not some coming person who's going to deceive the nations. Anyway, but verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Daniel says that the, these four kingdoms come, right? These are four kings which arise, and then verse 18, but then the saints receive the kingdom, and that kingdom lives forever and ever. So Daniel sees this harsh oppression of the nations, and the psalmist takes up the exact same theme. These kings, through their harsh oppression, through their military conquest, through how they rule their nations, how they reject God's law and establish their own contrary laws, which are against his law, as attempting to throw off God's government. Even in Psalm 2, before Christ comes, God reigns. 
Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The, kingdoms, or the kings of the earth set themselves together, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. Bonds are shackles. They're used to hold prisoners. They're used to hold animals in place. And here the psalmist sees the nations of the earth as those who are attempting to break the iron bonds of God by throwing off the lordship of his anointed. It says the Lord, that is Yahweh in the original text, that's Y-H-W-H, Jehovah, Yahweh, the name of God, and his anointed. So here, not only does God reign, not only does Yahweh reign, but also this person called Yahweh's anointed. Of course, we know that is Christ, but here there is at least the seed form of the idea. Even if you don't know this is Christ, here there's Yahweh and some some anointed king who is established by Yahweh. And these kings, the way that they rule, are attempting to overthrow the kingdom of this anointed one. Near the end of the Roman Empire, God comes and judges all the nations. We see God judge the people of Israel time and again. They go into exile. They are you know, oppressed by the Philistines, the Edomites. Babylon comes in. At some point, the Romans come in later on in, in history. But here, when Christ comes, God is not just judging the hypocritical Pharisees that we see in the gospel, but also through the entire Bible, especially in Revelation, we see God is judging the nations who are not following him. He's going to go get them, and in the process, he establishes his son. Daniel sees the ancient days holding a court in which he's judging the nations. And so the ancient of days is seen. Verse 13, came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. So this title, son of man, if you've read the gospels, Jesus identifies and calls himself the son of man. He's not saying that I'm not the son of God by saying the son of man. He's using and intending to invoke a term so that the, his hearers would connect him with this person, the son of man, a term almost exclusive to Daniel. To him, that is, this son of man, was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's pretty totalizing if you uh, think about that. All languages, nations, and peoples. This isn't an exclusivity kingdom. This is a total kingdom. This isn't a private club or a small movement or a sect in the earth or a minor religion. This is a kingdom which is going to expand to all peoples. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there's this this uh, person, the man is seen, and he's got iron feet mixed with clay. And clay, if you don't know, is what potters use to make vessels. Just so you're aware, um, some of us are kind of detached. The only time we see pots are if we go to like TJ Maxx or um, Michael's or something. Pots are made out of clay. We, we normally have plates made out of like glass now, but it used to be the case that Clay was used, it was baked in a fire, and it was the thing in which uh, a vessel was made. And so this clay and this iron together is essentially the beast with horns that we see. 
The Romans are described or prophesied as terrifying, great, etc., etc. And we know that Rome was a kingdom which is, was extremely militarily effective. They subjected everyone and absolutely totally dominated the empire. And in fact, all of the other empires compared to Rome were pretty merciful people. What would happen would be there would be a battle, and once you kind of retreat or surrender, usually the other empires would kill a token amount of you, and then the rest of you would live. But with Rome, almost all of the armies were destroyed. Rome would bring this peace that they said, the Pax Romana, and they would inflict it upon nations, and they would wipe out the army, but then all the citizens would live. And so from the commoner's standpoint, Rome was pretty nice. But actually, from the history point, uh, Rome is pretty powerful and extremely terrifying. And so this fourth beast, which Daniel sees, is Rome. And understanding it as such, we understand what Psalm 2 talks about. This one is seen as feet with clay and iron. And then here in Psalm 2, we see Christ doing something. Verse 7, I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The psalmist takes up the standpoint of this anointed of Yahweh. He is the one who is begotten and then he is given a promise. Verse 8, ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage, or some translations use inheritance, something you receive. So this anointed of Yahweh is going to receive the nations. And then verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Iron is stronger than iron mixed with clay, is it not? <laughs> yes. Maybe I need to get some clay pots next time for a demonstration. What is happening here could not be any more clear. This one, this anointed of Yahweh, who we know as Christ, is going to come and use his iron rod to dash those things which are made out of clay. He is going to put an end to the tyranny of Rome, and he's going to bring his kingdom, and that kingdom will never fade. And if you look at history, if you're a student of history, you know this is bore out over time. When Christ sets up his kingdom, the church, in a very small number of centuries, puts an end to the Roman Empire over time. And it's God's doing because Christ is reigning. So, though for a time Rome pesters the saints, Christ will prevail. And if you want to see how that plays out, take a look at Daniel 7. The rest of the chapter is it's, it's wonderful, absolutely beautiful. So, now, I'm, I'm saying that this has taken place. And... Um, I'm going to show you how that is the case. But at this point, it's not clear. Just from what we've examined in our part of the readings, this is merely at this moment a wonderful prophecy and a wonderful end goal. Uh, Daniel sees this thing. He's greatly perplexed. And he's probably perplexed because this is wonderful. The saints of God are going to be finally vindicated. We're going to stop going. Daniel's a, a, a prophet who's in exile right? He hears that they're going to be vindicated, they're going to receive a kingdom, and they'll never go into exile again. And at this moment, Daniel is, is just recording things, and it's only in Christ that this is fulfilled. Now, you can disagree with that, but at this point, we have to ask ourselves the question, does the Bible give us any understanding of whether or not this is now or in the future alone? 
And it's my opinion that you don't have to speculate at all. And the scriptures are extremely clear at this point because of what we're about to see when Daniel gives this interpretive key and then John picks it up in Revelation. In Daniel's interpretation, the kingdom that never ends is established in the days of those kings. So here's the beginning breadcrumb of how do you get to the idea that the kingdom is now. Verse uh, 44 in Daniel 2, which we've, met, we've mentioned in Daniel 2 being a corollary to Daniel 7. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. In the days of those kings, not after those kings, not 3,000 years later after those kings. In the days of those kings, God will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. In Daniel 2, we see a man who's made out of various metals and then finally clay and iron, and a stone, a large stone, comes and smashes the symbol or the man. In Daniel 7, we see four beasts which arise out of the sea, and then there is one who receives the kingdom and does away with all the beasts. They put an end to the oppression. And the kingdom comes in those days. Verse 45, just as you saw that a stone was cut by a mountain by no human hand. What do we know in the New Testament? The, the interpreters of the New Testament, the apostles say that Christ was the stone which the builders have rejected. And this is a marvelous thing done in our eyes. That's also the key of interpretation as we come into Advent, that Christ is the stone which the builders reject. And here it's the stone which was not used any human hand, and it broke the pieces of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. Daniel then says, this dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Daniel is utterly confident that this dream, Daniel 2, which Nebuchadnezzar has, applies to history. It applies to the future from Daniel's perspective, and now to us, it's thousands of years fulfilled. Consider also, if Christ's kingdom comes only at the eschaton, right, at the end of the age, at the same time as the judgment of all those who have died and those who are still living at that time, if Christ's kingdom comes only then, and Christ only reigns in the eschaton or after the second coming, then why does the psalmist give a warning to the, the kings of the nations of the earth? Think about it for a second. They would be, in your understanding of, of what happens at the eschaton, they would be in hell, would they not? And so why would the psalmist give a warning in Psalm 2? He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Well, if Christ sets up his kingdom only at the second coming, then there's nothing left for them to do. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry. Kissing the son means acknowledging his kingdom and then submitting yourself to it. Why? Because there's grace and mercy and a, cha a chance and a time for repentance. These kings are commanded by this psalmist to acknowledge the kingdom of Christ and to acknowledge his kingship. John the Baptist taught, past tense, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I, I put here in brackets, was, that's a way how you change a verb in a quote or change a pronoun in a quote. The kingdom of heaven was at hand in Matthew 3, 2, and Christ likewise taught. So John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Christ says this when he's in a debate with the Pharisees, 
but it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Christ is in a dispute with the Pharisees. They say that he's doing this deliverance or casting out of demons by the devil. Christ then says, know for certain that if I do it, I'm using the finger of God. And that only shows up one other time in the Bible. And it's used when Yahweh describes the desolation that he brings on Egypt as the finger of God. Only two places in the Bible. What's the implication? Jesus is bringing judgment on the nations and also Israel for turning away from him. In John's address to the readers of the opening of Revelation, he states that he is part of the kingdom. How can the kingdom only come at the second coming if John says he's part of the kingdom in approximately 60 AD when Revelation was written? John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who, uh, who is and who was and who is to come. And then look at this. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. John writes in verse uh, in, a, in approximately 60 AD and says that Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. At this point in Revelation, if you're not uh, familiar with the st- structure, this is just John's opening. This is like when you get on your email and you it says like from and to. When you type in who it's going to and then you say, hey, how you doing? That's what this is. This isn't even in the body of the prophecy. And so John says, Christ is already the ruler of the kings on the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. And then look, verse 6, he has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. John, in his interpretation of Daniel, in the address, is assuming and demonstrating that he's a part of this kingdom. And that that kingdom, which is ruled by Christ, is a dominion which exists forever and ever. It never passes away. John sees the Son of Man coming on the clouds soon, not far off in the future, and fulfilling the words of prophecy in Daniel. Daniel 7 says that the one who is the Son of Man comes on the clouds, is vindicated, and then receives a kingdom. John says that he sees Christ coming on the clouds and is part of the kingdom, which essentially means that Christ came at the time or around the time that John is writing his revelation and his unveiling. And so Christ is coming and demonstrating himself as a king. Christ himself in the Great Commission, this is way before John writes Revelation, testifies that he has already received the the dominion. Verse 18, Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. The Great Commission, which is is, uh, often interpreted, go into all the nations, that is the wrong place to start when understanding the Great Commission. The right place to start is Jesus Christ declaring to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on the earth has been given to me, therefore go. That's the beginning of the Great Commission. It's not we're on some mission to convince a lot of nations to come and join Christianity. It's Christ is commanding us to go into the nations and to tell them that he's got all authority to preach the good news, that there is forgiveness of sins and repentance, and to bring them into everything that he's commanded them to observe. As they baptize, as they convert, as they disciple these nations, they're announcing Christ's authority which is in heaven and on earth. It's not just in heaven. And so much of the Christianity in our day has desensitized us to our ineptitude at him reigning on the earth. 
He reigns now and he has authority now. And therefore we need to press out his kingdom into all of life. Christ did not forget to ask the father for all the nations as his inheritance. Psalm 2 says that the father says to the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations. He didn't say, ask of me, and I will let one or two nations for a small amount of time follow after the faith, and then there will be a great apostasy, and the Antichrist will deceive the whole world. He didn't say that. He said, ask of me, and I will give you the nations. I don't think that the Son of God forgot to ask. I'm, I'm very forgetful. I would forget to ask. I don't think Christ forgot to ask. He receives the inheritance, and because he receives the title deed to the nations, he then says to his disciples, go and get them. Go and get them. Round them up. Lassos. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth now and is annexing their lands through peace. He's doing it through peace right now, and the peace is not a peace which is just everyone can just be whoever they want. It's a peace which comes by his sword, which is two-edged. That means it cuts this way and it cuts that. Yes, it's peaceful, but it requires repentance. Yes, there's mercy and grace, but you can't not acknowledge his lordship. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. While learning Christ's present reign, we must not spiritualize reality away. We do this. We're susceptible to it. It's a common temptation. Because Christ is king now, he has claim over every area of life, individuals, families, churches, education, business, art, media, culture, and the state. Not just those things. Many of us as Christians, especially in America, it's very popular and very uh, almost comforting to think that most of culture is underneath the influence of the gospel, but the government's evil and they can't be redeemed and the gospel doesn't have anything to say about government. But if you look at Paul writing in Romans 13, he says that the state or the magistrate or the king is supposed to be God's servant. And I don't know about you, servants take instructions from masters, do they not? So God has something to say about the state. We cannot suppose that Christ can redeem individuals, he can even transform and bless families, he can establish good churches, he can establish good culture and art and and Christian schools, and then assume that Christ has nothing to say to the king or to the president or to the magistrate or to the local county sheriff. Christ has authority over all, and all must acknowledge his kingdom, his kingship. And so we need to be about the business of pressing out his kingdom into every dimension. If Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth, right? If that's true, then he is certainly the king of me. I'm not greater than a king, right? You aren't greater than a king. None of you have uh, crowns, although we do reign with Christ. Your, Your crowns are being manifested over time, but none of you have servants and attendants. And if, if Christ is the king over kings, then he's, over the, he's a king over the subjects or citizens of kings and presidents, right? It, it's, it's a clear thing to see. But what we often do is we say, well, Christ's kingship is spiritual, and so he only has authority in the church or in my heart, and I just need to repent and I get forgiven and then I'm fine and we're good again. Well, yes and no. First John says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But then it says, continue to walk in the light. His kingship must be pressed out into every dimension of life. 
because he's king, he has claim on everything in my life, my family, my time, my body. First uh, Corinthians makes that clear. That was what they were, they, they believed that they had free reign to do whatever they want, engage in sexual immorality, engage in any sort, sort of drug or witchcraft or whatever. He has control over my body. He has control over my car. I wish you would make it better. Um, the, the point is, everything that I have comes from God. That's what we sang in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings. That means anything that you have in your life, which is good, came from God, right? He's the, he's the father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. Acknowledging him as king, king is primary to doing thanksgiving well. So this is probably the best Thanksgiving sermon I've ever given, and it has nothing to do primarily with Thanksgiving because it has everything to do with do you acknowledge him as king or do you simply live in kind of this unrealized state where you enjoy the blessings of the kingdom but don't actively work to extend the boundaries of the kingdom. If everything that I have comes from him, then I have to use everything which he's given me in a way which demonstrates his kingdom. Right? We would, if you consider yourself a, a business owner in this example, if you had an employee who just took time and resource and maybe stole equipment and then put it in his garage, you would fire that person, right? You'd get rid of them. Why? Because they don't acknowledge your authority. If Christ is king, then I, as one who receives his blessings, have to use those blessings in a way which demonstrates his kingdom. As a servant, I have to work in a way that pleases my master. Because his kingdom is gracious, we extend its borders not by military might, but rather by a powerful sword, a more powerful sword than the actual swords, right? When Jesus is standing before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world, but rather it is coming, and therefore my disciples do not fight. A more powerful sword, a more powerful weapon is a consistent life which demonstrates God's kingdom. You can kill somebody easily. It's very trivial. But you cannot convert someone easily. That takes the power and spirit of God. And so the more powerful sword is the sword which comes out of Christ's mouth. As we'll see, that is carried by the church. Our appeal to be reconciled to God through forgiveness and repentance, which we should be constantly proclaiming in every aspect of life to everyone that we know, is not an empty plea, but rather a sure promise. Acts 17.30 says, God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I've never heard an altar call in which someone said, God commands you to repent. <laughs> I've heard a lot of, if you'd like to come, or if you'd like to be, you know, God commands all people everywhere to repent has to be ingrained into the way that we understand the gospel. Yes, it's by grace. Yes, it's by mercy. It's none, none of our effort, but it's not merely optional to recognize his kingdom or not. One day, every tongue will confess that he is God. One day, every knee will bow. That's what we sang today. One day, everyone is going to see Christ manifested as a reigning king and righteous judge, and they will be judged accordingly. And it is in this time, in this age that we have a chance to be reconciled to him by what he did. And it's a gracious reconciliation. But at the same time, we have to be about the business of warning people that they're currently rebelling against a king, a king that they do not know, nor do they wish to. 
And in fact, that itself is a form of their rebellion. And so we have to declare his present reign in a gracious way, but at the same time be firm and then live as if it's true. Because he's my king, he commands tribute, right? What we do when we give up offerings is we recognize his authority over our money. He doesn't just recognize, I don't just recognize his authority over how I live in my heart. It then works itself out into how I live my life. I'm happy to obey because knowing him is a greater gold than the gold that I have. Jesus says, if, if you don't show yourself as faithful with unrighteous mammon or stuff, money, corporal, physical money, then how can you be trusted with true riches? It, they go hand in hand. Fulfilling your duty as a believer externally is a representation of the fact that you have an internal reality going on. Because his reign is absolutely secure, I do not live in anxiety concerning the future. And in fact, I have generally abstained from caring too much what's going on in politics. Now, I believe that Christians should be in politics, as we're going to talk about in a second. But my world is not rising or falling whether Ron Paul won the 2012 election or not. (laughs) And I use that as a joke. I actually was really hoping that he would. But I was very convinced that no one would ever elect Ron Paul because the type of worldview which he espoused is one that is not popular in our culture. We have become mostly socialistic, but my world does not rise or fall based on the progress or or regress of the American populace. It is secure because there is a king who will never be deposed. As Christians, we ought to live, build, invest, develop, plant, harvest with great struggle and effort and know that there will be some sort of reward. Yes, America may be a dark time. Yes, as people who are having children and and establishing businesses and having families, yes, we have some concern for the plight of our fellow man. Yes, it's a dangerous idea to simply bring up a child in this culture and not be very intentional about bringing them to the Lord. But at the same time, you don't need to fret over it. He's a king who will never be, be deposed and who will never stop reigning. As Christians, we do physical labor. We engage in philosophy and the arts. We engage in the sciences. We establish schools and universities. We do research and we teach. We carry out business and commerce because Christ is king. And we do those things in a way to demonstrate his kingdom. We marry and raise godly children, or if we're called to it, we abstain from marriage and encourage our brothers and sisters, but we do so because Christ is king, not because we have a desire. I I mean, obviously, it's right to desire to take a wife or a husband and to have children, but a primal desire underneath that, or one that's more fundamental and, and important, is to recognize that we are demonstrating his kingdom through the way that we live. We should serve, I think we don't do this enough, we should serve in governmental capacity and the seat of the magistrate. And by magistrate, I mean someone who's a judge, someone who's a sheriff, someone who's a governor, etc. I don't think that our current structure of primal importance in the federal system is ideal, but one of the ways we got there is by the church retreating from government. And so we should be involved in government as Christians just as much as business, art, finance, etc., The point is that we are to demonstrate and to occupy his kingdom now and to work in such a way as to extend its borders in peace. We do everything that we do because he's king. Our desire is a sincere and robust faith in which we press out the crown rights of Jesus. The crown rights is a term that we have to go research in an encyclopedia somewhere, mainly because we don't have a king in this country. But the idea that the crown 
or the king has rights to things in his dominion is very foreign to us. But that's the language of the Bible, and that's actually the most common uh, experience for men over time. And we have to begin to understand what that means. Christ has rights to every aspect of life, and I, as his loyal, faithful, joyful subject, should be attempting to press them out, to work them out, to bring them to visible, bring them to real. This vision for life is not our own, but rather his. It's absolutely God's worldview that we begin to live in step with what he calls us to. So we've examined a previous call just a a few minutes ago to this idea of every aspect of life, and now we're going to hammer home what is Christ's calling on the church specifically. Christ does have authority over the individual, the family, the church, education, business, finance, and the state, all forms of art, art, media, and culture, but here we're going to look specifically at what is Christ's tool And that tool is the church, as I think we're going to see. Verse 12 in Revelation 1, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. If you never get confused in your Bible, you're probably not reading it enough. Did you just hear that? I turned to see the voice. (laughs) I think that's funny. (laughs) I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. There's Daniel 7 right there. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Christ is seen as the son of man who is dressed in priestly and kingly garments. He is one who walks among the seven lampstands. This is evocative of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where Yahweh comes and walks among the trees of the garden. In fact, uh, this sort of phraseology is only used in those two places. Uh, it says in Revelation 1, 14 through 16, his head were white like wool, like snow. Do you remember what happened when Daniel saw the Ancient of Days? He saw one that was like snow and hair that was white. And out from his throne flowed what? A river of fire. This is intense. Way better than Lord of the Rings. He bears the family resemblance. Christ looks like the Ancient of Days. He has authority. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze. I don't know about you. I'd rather choose bronze over iron and pottery. (laughs) His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the the sun shining in full strength. Christ has in his hands, at this moment, when when John sees a new son of man, that is the one who is truly the reigning king, instead of Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel 2, as a man who's made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay, he sees Christ, the exact same imagery and typology used, and then instead of a rod of iron in Psalm 2, we see what is in Christ's hand? Seven stars. At the end of Revelation 1, John asks, and it's told to him, The mystery is clear. The seven stars are seven churches. Christ has a rod of iron, but here we see as churches, I think it's clear the implication is that his church, speaking his word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the agent through whom he rules the nations. Or at least it should be. That should be the vision for the church. As we go out and fulfill the Great Commission, proclaiming forgiveness, baptizing the nations, teaching his word, he draws the nations to himself, right? Christ says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He was lifted up from the earth on the cross. 
And that is what we do when we represent the gospel, which is an offer of forgiveness, an offer of mercy and repentance and reconciliation, and also an offer to come and bow the knee before Christ. And when you begin to bow the knee, you begin to see how glorious it is to be a subject of the king and how any other position in life, any other station in life would be terrible. Seeing this great calling for the people of God, we should turn away from a low view of the purpose of life. Many of you live as if your life does not matter because you do not understand that you are supposed to be bringing about a kingdom on the earth and that your work has eternal significance and purpose. You need to acknowledge that. And that is what I mean by repentance. You need to repent from a low view of life, which says, it doesn't really matter whether I invest, serve, plant, or mature as a young man or a young woman. And that is what calling brothers and sisters to Christian maturity is all about. It's to acknowledge that Paul's main mission was that he was establishing churches, but not just for a religious club or to make people's lives better. He says our goal is to present every man as mature and that the body is supposed to grow up into maturity, into the head. That is, Christ is here and the church is supposed to be matured and grow up and connect to this one that they acknowledge as their king. And so this is what we need to do. This is hard for us because what it means is Christ has asked, he has total authority over everything, not just my private sins, but also my laziness and also the fact that I don't really want to love my neighbor and I don't really want to work hard in order to bring him glory. It's, it's hard. His kingdom is not uh, just some easy message, but it is the only gospel there is. We should turn away from burnout and renew our weary hearts in the stream of joy. In Revelation, it says that out from Christ's throne is a river which flows to refresh who? The nations. Why? Because his people are in them, converting them into his people. The river is supposed to renew us. We used to sing a song here uh, many years ago. We still sing it occasionally, but it's, for all who are thirsty, all who are weak, come to the fountain, dip your heart in the streams of life. What it means to acknowledge Christ as king is to see that his throne is the source of joy. It's the source of life. The river of life, which men have been looking for throughout all time in history, probably one of the greatest literary themes, the search for the river or tree of life, is found at the throne of the king, who is Christ. Acknowledging his kingship is a way to true life. And so we acknowledge his throne. So my calling to you, to the church, to the vision for the whole next year, that you know, it may not feel like this is the end of our calendar year, but I preached this message like it was. This is the end of 2015, essentially, for the way that we count time in the church calendar. Of course, we'll still probably have a New Year's party uh, or privately celebrate together at home. Um, Essentially, what, what you have to see, the vision for your life being a part of this church or the vision for your life being a Christian anywhere else is that you would seek to press out the crown rights, crown rights of Christ into every dimension. And that's not a different religion than the Christianity which has always been espoused. As in, the gospel which we have limited to just going to heaven instead of going to hell is not at all a message apart from this message. That is a tiny kernel within a larger worldview. 
And what it means to be a Christian who's growing up into maturity is to be continually allowing the renewal of our minds by the Spirit of God through the Word of God to take place and to let our view of who God is and how he wants me to live always grow. And so I'm calling you to recognize that you have a great calling and you have a great purpose, which is to bring about the obedience of faith in the nations and to extend the boundaries of God's kingdom into every nation in the earth. So let's get to work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you would deliver us from uh, just weak views of what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. God, I pray that you would give us purpose, that you would allow us to see that you are active now in your reign. Your reign is not passive. You are currently raising up kings. You're tearing down kings. You're establishing cultures. You're removing cultures. You're doing this according to your word and your divine promise. We know, God, that your victory is absolutely sure. So we ask you, God, to deliver us from thinking that Christianity just means what I do in my heart. Help us, Lord, to see that it, it's supposed to be everything, that you are God. Help us to see that you have claim on every aspect of life. And while we see that vision, Lord, lest our hearts totally tremble and faint at this great vision of what you're calling to us to, strengthen us by your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would give us a mighty move of your spirit, that it wouldn't just be for our personal enjoyment, that your presence and power would be demonstrated through what we say and do. We ask you, Lord, to, in this next year, help us to understand the significance of celebrating your history, your story through Advent, through Christmas, through Lent and Easter, through Pentecost and the rest of the year. Lord, help us to see that we need to be at work and not through our own strength, but by your spirit. God, I pray that you would deliver those who still view you as a king who is a tyrant. Help us to, to recognize your merciful call and opportunity. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.